We're just going to read a Bible reading at the start. And this is a, a letter that um, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. Now, um, when, we read the, when we read these letters, we, uh, we see them in chapters and verses. But uh, I want you to picture these as just letters, letters written. So we're going to turn to Philippians chapter 4, um, 1 to 9. It's, up, it's on the screen, so um, as I read, you can follow along. Now I appeal to Euodia, gee I've been practicing these all week, Euodia and Syntyche, please because you belong to the Lord settle your disagreement and I ask you my true partner to help these two women for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord, I say it again, Rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honourable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. Um, I've lived in Mucca um, all of my life, except for five years when I was down at boarding school. Uh, that was in the late 60s and 70s, and obviously that was prior to mobile phones. Um, this one, sweetheart, phone box. So the only way that we could um, ring home was go down to the phone box on the corner of the street, which um, I never did. So the only way of communicating with back home was through letters and uh, at, uh, when I was at boarding school on uh, Sunday nights it was compulsory to write a letter home to your parents. And my mother, um, she used to write to me and my sisters and they were at a, um, our sister school um, up the road. She used to write us letters twice a week. She used to uh, post one on Thursdays when she came to town and then another one on Sunday nights after church. So we'd get news from home uh, twice a week and I really look forward to those letters. And when I look back, I think, how dedicated was, was my mum? And I appreciated that. <clears throat> I only ever received two letters from my father. Both contain words of reproof, meaning to criticise or correct, especially gently, and in the context, to reprove a pupil for making a mistake or to disapprove or, of, or strongly censure. In other words, to reprove a bad decision. And why my dad felt necessary to write, uh, to send those letters, we're not going there. <laughs> but of course, in biblical times, 
there was only two sources of communications, the spoken word or the written word. And so in the New Testament, we have the ins, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Thessalonians, and these were letters written to the churches that Paul had, had established throughout Asia Minor and Macedonia. So if he couldn't get there himself, the only form of communication was by letter. And his letters contained advice, they sorted out queries, problems, they gave words of encouragement, words of reproof, of correction. And they equipped the church members in those churches for the preaching of the gospel. And so today we're going to have a look at a passage from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, where he lays out a formula for Christian living, and as a result, church growth. And these letters could be well have been written to the church at Muckenburden, the church at Bruce Rock, the church at Meriden, Busselton, South Perth, Mount Barker, wherever. So we're going to have a look at, um, and if Bruce was here, I'd tell him that we've got a five-point sermon so he knows when the end's coming. So we're going to um, have a look at uh, five things. The first one is reconciliation, as he urged Euodia and Sigintiki to do. Um, and then as he reminded his uh, readers to cultivate uh, consideration, as he urged them to, sorry, I missed one, joy, sorry, as he reminded his readers to cultivate the joy, uh, considerate, as he urged them to employ in their relation to other people, and prayer, as he had modelled for them in person and in writing, and focus, as he had shown even when he was in prison. Reconciliation, joy, consideration, prayer, and focus. Things we're called to live and live out as believers in Jesus. Right, Euodia and Syntyche. This is the only mention they get in the Bible. What do we know about them? Well, we know they're Christians because their names are written in the book of life. And we know that they love to share the gospel because it says they've worked hard with Paul spreading the good news. And we know that they don't get along. We don't know what their problem is. All we know is that they have a disagreement. They can't get along. So that's not only a 21st century problem, is it? It's a 1st century problem as well. Now, you know, Tracy and I t attend an Anglican church uh, when we go to Perth in Cottesloe. It's an evangelical church, similar in a lot of ways to ours. And there's a couple, uh, John and El McPherson. How would you like to live your name with that? Let's call it Ellie. John and Ellie McPherson. And they've always uh, run the music. And why not? Uh, John's a high school music teacher. He plays al almost every instrument imaginable. And Elle is a drama teacher. She's a bit out there, vivacious, an excellent singer, really good leader. But over a period of time, we've noticed that the music has slowly been taken over by another lady, Cheryl. And next thing I notice, that McPherson's are not in church anymore. So I asked the question to one of my friends. I said, what's going on? I haven't seen John and Elle at church when we come down. And he tells me, uh, 
They've left the church and they are leading the music team at another church. Sounds like a Euodia Syntyche situation. Paul says, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And, th and in that case, this case, I suspect they didn't. See, in the city, if you have a disagreement in your church, rather than settle it, you go to the church down the road. But Mucca is a church like Philippi. There's no church down the road. Paul says, settle your disagreement. So why are there disagreements in church? Simply, one three-letter word, sin. So what is sin? Sin, in the broad context, is putting yourself before God. So why are there disagreements in church? Simply because we think, I am right and you are wrong. And Philippians 2, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Be humble. Be Christ-like. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Be humble. Be Christ-like. Now, several years ago, uh, the Perth Wildcats had a Christian coach, an American guy named Dick Helm. Now, Coach Helm used a Christian principle to spur his players. His mantra was, your role is to make your teammate look good. He didn't want any egos. He wanted his players to put others before themselves. So set a screen to make an easy shot. Goal assists were just as important as baskets. Work it out, boys. It's not about you. And that's not a bad mantra for a church. Clearly, with the exception of key doctrinal principles, most disagreements within churches are because we're putting ourselves before others, before the good of the church, before the name of Jesus. Now, unlike Paul's letters to the church at Corinth, who, when you read the letters, they were completely mixed up. They had all sorts of doctrinal issues uh, that needed sorting. But Paul is not warning the church at Philippi about doctrinal stuff, rather relational stuff. He's not giving spiritual advice, if you like, rather practical advice. Now, there are non-essential doctrines we all get hung up about. Different interpretations of Scripture, say. We've all got different emphasis. The, th the key thing is, don't push yours. Don't let your emphasis lead to festering disagreements with your fellow believers. Now, clearly, these two, two women, they're good people. And quite often, disagreements in churches are between good people. But sadly, good people, solid believers, good servants of Jesus have broken relationships with others who are committed to the same, same cause. However, what Paul is saying here is there's no excuse for remaining unreconciled. Keep the main thing, the main thing. God loves us. Jesus died for us. Paul's one message for everyone. I have one message for Jews and Greeks alike. 
the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and having faith in our one Lord Jesus. Keep the main thing the main thing. Now in business, to be successful, companies must protect their brand, their good name. And at CBH, our brand, what we stand for is paramount. I just want you to think about how Ben Cousins and the drug culture damaged the West Coast Eagles brand. And look at the damage that uh, rogue priests have done to the Catholic Church. Why do churches damage the name of Jesus through church splits, disagreements between members? Euodia Sintiki. But Paul saw the problem and he urged a fellow worker to get them to sort it out. I personally don't believe that God is ever in a church split. On the other hand, Satan loves it. And it's not only the devil who loves this sort of thing, but unbelievers love to see the churches falter as well. They grasp hold of this sort of stuff. And the secular press absolutely love putting the boots into Christians. Think Izzy Folau, Margaret Court. Non-Christians love a dispute between Christians. Jesus tells us, By this everyone will know that you are my my disciples if you love one another. I'll read that again. By this everyone will know that you are Christians if you love one another. I'll just let you dwell on that. Part of being reconciled, of course, is forgiveness. And forgiveness, a key pillar of the Christian walk. And unfortunately, I know Christians and many unbelievers as well who struggle to recognise that people change. My dad, for example, saw a church member in the footy club using very unchristian-like language and behaving in a manner not suitable for, to being a Christian. And Dad carried not so much as unforgiveness, but let's say a disappointment against that person for many, many years because of that behaviour. But over the years, that person had changed. However, sadly, my father continued to hold that thing against him. Please, move on. You're only hurting yourself. The other party has quite likely moved on. And they didn't even know you held a grudge. I hate to think there's something out, sorry, I'd hate to think that someone out there is thinking, uh, back in 2013, Jeff Seabee said, or something hurtful. I'd like to think, that's not me anymore. You see, Jesus continues to work in us and mould us as we grow in him. We all make mistakes. We all have regrets about things we've said or done. I've had a regret that I got this haircut last week. (laughs) The point is, reconcile. Don't carry a grudge. By this, everyone will know that you're a Christian if you love one another. Our unity with other believers and our faithfulness to God can set us apart from the whole world. But the problem is, this doesn't come naturally. We constantly strive to overcome the temptation to put our point of view above those of others. 
We wrestle against selfishness to have harmony with our spiritual brothers and sisters. However, let me tell you this hope. Because alive in each believer, God's Spirit empowers us to be self-controlled, kind and faithful. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Now don't be confused about the role of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus promised. John 14, 16. I'll give you another advocate, and some translations use the word helper, who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit. Now the Greek word used here is paracleti, and the root of that word for this word um, advocate uh, gives ideas of advising, exhorting, urging, comforting, strengthening, interceding and encouraging. Just, with, just as we're called to live beyond our natural capacity, God's supernatural help can make it possible. The next slide. The Holy Spirit has a role here. Let him control you. It's only as we mature and we deepen our roots into God's love and his word that we do surrender ourselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit and, that, and putting others before ourselves becomes a natural thing. Here's a question. How can the Holy Spirit help you avoid becoming small, narrow or selfish? I'll answer the question for you. Let him control you. Perhaps God is inviting you to see others or others' point of view with new eyes. In verse 6 of our reading, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Now the Greek word for anxious, and I've been practicing this one as well, is merinao, and it means to be divided or distracted. Divided or distracted in one's thinking. And Paul is saying to believers, uh-uh, don't be divided or distracted. Let's all pull in the one direction. But Paul doesn't simply leave the readers to figure out how to be reconciled or get back onto the same page. He pr provides a fourfold instruction how to keep our minds focused. Now the first method for the single-mindedness is rejoice in the Lord. Just remember, Paul is in prison writing this letter. In his circumstances... How can Paul be happy? The thing is, he's saying rejoice in the Lord, not be happy. You see, your level of happiness... Sorry, what does it mean? Your level of happiness is dependent on what happens. And another word for rejoice is to exult or be triumphant. Happiness and joy, two different things. Let me give you an example. In the last month during seating, our outfits have folded the front axle of the air seater box up underneath. We've blown a motor in a tractor, which we still haven't got back yet. Uh, we've had to replace a radiator in the other tractor, which has cost us five days. On top of that, the Eagles lost two games in a row. You reckon I'm happy? 
But in those circumstances, I can still rejoice in the Lord. I think that's another good mantra to live by. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient, patient in affliction and keep on praying. That's part of Paul's letter to the Romans. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in affliction. Keep on praying. And you'll be familiar with these words in Habakkuk. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms, there's no grapes on the vines. Even though the olive crops failed, the fields lie empty and barren. Even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord God is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as deer, able to tread upon the heights. Also, the book of Lamentations. Lamentations was likely written during or, during or soon after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 587 BC. If you've read it, I haven't. It's quite a sad book. But in it, it describes the affliction, the oppression, and the starvation that the people faced. Yet, in the middle of the book, the author remembers why he could cope and have hope. And you'll know this verse. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassion never fails. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Despite the devastation, the author remembered that he can be joyful in the Lord. You know, we read these scriptures all the time. We need to act them out. So when we change our focus, and I'm going to talk about focus in a minute, <clears throat> and focus on what we have in Jesus, we can rejoice. Think of those who are imprisoned for their faith, ostracized from their families for the gospel. They aren't happy, but they can rejoice. So the instru second instruction from Paul is a little verse squeezed in, and it gives really good practical advice. Let everyone see that you consider it in all that you do. Consider it. What does that mean? It means be thoughtful of others. Some translations use the word be gentle. Other translations use the word have a forbearing spirit. And a forbear means to refrain or cease. The overview can be best summed up from the Living Bible from Romans 12, 18. Don't quarrel with anyone. Be at peace with everyone as much as it's possible. Don't quarrel with anyone. Be at peace with everyone as much as possible. Or in Psalm 34, 13, we can read, Depart from evil, do good, seek peace and pursue it. How many mantras, good mantras have I given you today? So to redirect our focus, we need to take the concerns to God in thankful prayer. When you read through Paul's letters, time and time again, he urges believers to pray. And I've looked them up. There's lists and lists. Pray for him. Pray for each other. Pray in thanksgiving. Paul knew the value of prayer. And he knew the value of thanking God for his great provisions. 
And I just want you to notice the result of the prayer here. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything you can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds. Now, the peace of God is best described by Jesus in John 14, 27. I'm leaving you a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Do I need to say any more here? Right, lastly, the Apostle Paul encourages us to focus our attention on the things that are true, pure, lovely, admirable and praiseworthy. Reconciliation, joy, considerate, prayer and focus, things we're called out to live as believers in Jesus. So what is our focus? We need to program our minds with thoughts that are true, honourable, right, pure, lovely, excellent and praiseworthy. So firstly, we need to examine ourselves, ask ourselves, what are we putting into our minds from the stuff we see on, excuse me, on TV or on social media or in magazines and in our conversations? If we focus on the Word of God, our minds will be reprogrammed. But like any habit, these virtues must be practised in order to be, out, to be cultivated. You see, a concept is just a concept until we learn how to work it out in practice. Paul wrote about practice to his friends here in Philippi. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. So what do elite sports teams do during the week? What do the Eagles do during the week? Yep, practice. Now when Mark Seavey was playing state-level basketball, he had a playbook. He had to learn all the set plays. Then practice, practice, practice until all the concepts became second nature. And that go, the same goes for our Christian walk. We need to practice these concepts laid out in God's Word so that it becomes second nature to us. The word practice used here in Paul's letter literally means keep putting into practice. But here's some good news, as Paul has already told the Philippians. It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We've already touched on this. God, the Holy Spirit, lives within us. We're never practicing in our own power. God, through his spirit, will provide what we need. That's the end. I'd just like to finish with one more verse, if I can. Philippians 1, 27. Above all else, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of good news about Christ, standing firm in one spirit, with one purpose, striving together for the faith which is the gospel.